Welcome to the OmniTalk Fast Five, sponsored by Takeoff and the AM Consumer and Retail Group. The OmniTalk Fast Five is the funniest, fastest, and most fervently insightful breakdown of all the week's top news in the world of retail, and also the podcast with the best alliteration. It's July 8th, 2021. I am your host, Anne Mazinga, joined today by returning guest host, author of the book and host of the podcast, Remarkable Retail, Steve Dennis. Steve, welcome to the hey show. There. It's Thanks. good to I'm have happy. you. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. It's good to see you. We are coming back from a holiday week off, Steve. How was your 4th of July? It was good. I was, uh, I was off in Telluride, Colorado, which is a wonderful Ooh. place uh, in general, but particularly to escape Dallas and its heat. It was very beautiful there. And I tried mostly not to work. And now that's catching up with me. So <laughs> here we are. Part. It's the worst part, right? You take a couple yeah. of days off and then get smacked right back when you get in there. Um, what does is, what is the 4th of July celebration entail in the Dennis household? What do you guys do in Telluride to celebrate? Uh, it was it was rather quiet. The fireworks and parade were canceled. So oh. uh, mainly due to um, concerns about, well, partially COVID, I think, but also uh, it's so dry out there. Oh. So I think they were concerned about it. So just hanging out, enjoying some music, eating too much food. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of it. Not nothing, nothing terribly exciting. Is there any special like dish that you guys make for 4th of July? Like I know in our, in our family, we have jello cake. Like that's a 4th of July thing that we make like a cake with cool whip and like yeah. the flag out of strawberries and blueberries. It's a very Midwestern thing. You guys know because, because I'm old and my kids have moved elsewhere. Uh, I think all those traditions have, have died. It used to be more barbecue or whatever, but no, nothing. No, you guys I'm, just do I'm your own dull. thing. I'm you just dull. do your own yeah. thing. All right. All Take right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, I'm glad everybody, hope everybody listening had a wonderful 4th of July. Uh, we are going to get into the Fast Five today. Today, we are going to talk Bloomingdale's launching their off-mall concept, Bloomies. Glossier raising another $80 million as they set out to build more stores. John Lewis moving from retail to real estate ventures. And Brookfield and Simon Properties' latest ghost kitchen investment. But first, we are going to take off with our first headline. And that is headline number one. Steve, do you know who does not have a holiday hangover? Dollar General. Or yeah. chain store ages, Marianne Wilson. Both of them came back from the Fourth of July holiday with these crazy big stories. Um, two huge announcements. First, Dollar General announced that they're expanding fresh produce to more of their stores. They currently offer fresh produce in more than 1,300 stores, but they have plans to now expand that offering to 10,000 locations, including a meaningful number of stores that are located within the USDA's defined food mm -hmm. deserts. That was big news. That was Tuesday. That was right out of the gate. And second, uh, yesterday, they announced that they've hired their first chief medical officer and they plan to build a comprehensive network of affordable services for Dollar General customers. So they'll be, in addition to expanding potential medical offerings in Dollar General stores, they're also going to be expanding their assortment of cold and cough, dental, nutritional uh, medical health aids and feminine hygiene products. So two giant stories out of Dollar General this week. 
by way of chain storage. And also, this is the headline that AM Consumer and Retail Group has chosen for their put us on the spot question. So, <laughs> Steve, you and I need to answer as we're carefully considering our thoughts around this big announcement. Do you believe that by pushing into healthcare and fresh produce, Dollar General can provide value to this underserved market? And does expansion into these categories threaten Walmart, Amazon, and some of the other big players in the space? Mm. If so, how can Dollar General differentiate themselves? And are there any other categories you think they could do so um, by expanding into? Big, long question, but let's get I was going to say, Steve. we have like three or four hours to answer this. Um, yes. <laughs> Well, first of all, I think a few things are going on here. One is all the dollar stores, I think, have to think about how much growth is left down the road by opening stores. I mean, they've opened so many stores. I've seen some analysis about just kind of the overcrowding um, of the space. So I think some of this is, okay, we, we may not be able to drive future growth by store openings as much as trying to drive mm-hmm. store productivity average transaction value. So, so I think part of this is thinking about those categories that can drive growth. Um, right. Also, these dollar stores rightly get a lot of criticism for serving unhealthy food and um, you know promoting, not promoting, but contributing to less than healthy lifestyles. So thinking about fresh produce, thinking about healthcare makes a ton of sense. Um, the healthcare part seems a little bit of a stretch to me, one of the big advantages mm. for dollar stores is they have so many locations in many markets that are not well served by a lot of retailers. But I generally don't think the markets they're in don't have a pharmacy, you know, a Walgreens or, or something like that. So it's not as obvious to me that this is this big open area. That The wellness part sounds a little bit more like a PR move. The okay. fresh produce part, I think, is, is a bit more of an opportunity uh, both from a PR perspective and being a good corporate citizen, but in terms of um, addressing these food desert areas, I mean, the data is pretty clear that there aren't a lot of good, a lot of good choices. So I'm more favorable towards that one. My okay. big question for these these dollar stores, really for any retailer that's trying to expand their assortment meaningfully, is what goes. <laughs> you know, right. these are not big stores. What are you not going to sell, or are you counting on um, maybe a bigger store format going forward. So I think it's the curation and the merchandising of it that that makes me wonder how this is going to be a big opportunity. But I certainly think from a PR and from a consumer standpoint, the fresh produce peeps makes part makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, I think when, when I first heard this, I mean, I, I was really concerned for the Walmarts out, out there and the Walgreens and CVSs. I mean, the, the Dollar General has, you know, 16, 17,000 stores. And, right. and like, you're right, to be able to have that footprint, they're already ahead of a lot of those retailers. And if they can start doing, I, I pulled some data. This is actually, um, the data was from 2012. So the data is is old, but I, st- I think even if you add for inflation, the average family of four in 2012 was spending $4,000 a year at a Walmart. And mm-hmm. 90% of Americans live within 10 miles of a Walmart. 75% of the population live within five miles of one of these $17,000 general stores. So I think that if you could, if the, if Dollar General can start to pick up some of these trips, like you're saying, Steve, it will require to ha- having the right assortment. 
the right fill-in products. But if they can pick up some of these trips that otherwise would have gone to a Walmart, um, if it's more convenient, if they can can give customers a reason to come to that store over a Walmart um, and fulfill all the needs that they might have for that shopping trip, there is a, a lot of money to be made here by Dollar General. Sure. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I think about is... Um, you know, what kind of technology are they planning on putting into these stores to, you know, accommodate staffing a, a medical center or, ch- you know, yeah, like how, right. how are you finding that's a whole we, we different know that, thing? Yeah. Right. We know that that's a big area of concern um, right now, just with the current labor shortage that we have. But then also, how are you figuring out how to, um, you know, rotate staff? It, getting into the medical industry is an entirely new industry beyond retail. Right. So I think you're right. Like the fr- the produce makes sense. You know, that operationally seems like it, it wouldn't be a huge lift for these stores. But yes, the, the other areas of incorporating, um, you know, healthcare into the mix, while very valuable, if they can make this happen, is something that will require a pretty significant uh, alteration to the business model. But great for great for dollar general uh customers if they can make it happen yeah absolutely i'm as for other categories steve anything else that you could think of that that dollar general could get into that might help um help them in this be more i guess defensible against some of the walmarts or amazons as they continue to expand i don't think there are any obvious big ones i mean they you know the dollar stores have become kind of this this weird kind of convenience store, right? Like there were blown up 7-Eleven, there were shrunk down Walmart. So they sit in this right. really interesting space. And I think uh, clearly, cause they, they just kind of out outlet, that's a, a term, uh, <laughs> so many other retailers, it's it's a huge advantage. But um, no, I don't know if there are any any big ones. I think I think grocery and, you know, maybe some prepared food, something like that. Sure. Um, uh, could, could be an issue. But again, you get the, into this issue of the operational complexity of doing it. And they're not big stores. So if you're going to make a push into one area, something has to has to go, I think. And the, right. these aren't e-commerce businesses. And it's not like this is an endless aisle sort of sort of play, I don't think. Yeah. And and I think the thing that you you mentioned that's important is the space. I mean, for me, I was thinking like, can you get into being like a, a drop ship site? Like, do they start to become a place where right. like, you know, Wayfair or Box or some of these bulk items, like, could this be a pickup location mm-hmm. for those kinds of things? And are there ways that you could use lockers or something else that wouldn't require a change, like a significant sure. change to the internal store footprint? Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to kind of think and, and ponder, uh, where the future of, of dollar general goes. And, and even, I mean, we didn't talk about their dollar DGX stores too, that they're doing mm-hmm. the grab and go concepts and how yeah. they might learn from those concepts in more urban areas and maybe figure out what they could apply to some of these, um, these more rural areas. Sure. Well, Steve, I am excited to get your perspective on headline number two, given your background, uh, Bloomingdale's has announced that they are moving off mall with the opening of their new concept Bloomies that they're opening in Fairfax, Virginia on August 26th. According to CNBC, the roughly 22,000 square foot space will sell men's and women's apparel, footwear, jewelry, handbags, and beauty products. And the merchandise on the floor is going to rotate frequently throughout the week. So uh, if you see in the images, it's very flexible, fun, um, Uh, fixtures and it'll give customers something fresh to look at every time they return. The company, uh, which is owned by Macy's said that Bloomies will serve as more serve 
more as a hub for experiences, including, Steve, a colada shop, which I've never heard of before, but I'm intrigued by, and a restaurant with coffee and cocktails. What are your thoughts on this one, Steve? You have, you've been with Neiman Marcus. You know the luxury yeah. market well. What, what do you think of this? Well, part of me is like, I feel like 2005 called and it wants this press announcement back. Um, I have worked uh, in the late 90s and during the 2000s on small store concepts. When I was at Neiman Marcus, we basically launched this store uh, in 2007, I guess, a concept called Imitation Cusp. is the best form of well, flattery, um, Steve? And, I don't know. Well, and Cusp, I mean, there's a lot of different things, obviously, that have happened in the intervening time. But um you know, part of me, you know, I've been very critical of Macy's in general for basically watching the last 20 years happen to them. Um, right. You know, they have, despite having consolidated the space and done all sorts of things, they've continued to lose market share across all their formats. But I don't think Bloomingdale's is any different. So part of me is like, oh, really? You know, this probably was a great idea 15 or 20 years ago. Um but I applaud them for trying things. I think, you know, the the thing that's different, and, and I wrote something for Forbes about the other day, and I cover this in my book a little bit, is I think there's this idea um, that Nordstrom has really been pioneering of how do you maximize your market share in a given geography through e-commerce and a mix of formats. And so given that the large-scale department store format has been losing market share for 20 years, pretty much. Um, what's a different way to get closer to the customer and serve certain segments and certain purchase occasions pretty well. So at the heart of that, I think this Bloomies idea um, is is not a bad idea, that it's getting closer to the customers, it's thinking about maximizing market share. It's also what Macy's is trying to do, though poorly, with their market by Macy's concept. So interesting idea. these smaller stores, though, from my experience, they're really hard to get right because you're significantly editing from a, what, 200,000, 150,000 square yeah. foot Bloomingdale store down to right. 22,000. And the question is, who's it for? What's it for? And what makes it remarkable? And by, mm-hmm. you know, remarkable in the way I talk about it in my book, but, you know, this is not a growth category. So for it to work, you're going to steal market share from other places, I would argue. And at 22,000 square feet, you're talking about a store that probably has to do, you know, 10 to $15 million in volume to work. Mm-hmm. And and so who is it edited against? If it's just kind of a greatest hits of, of Bloomingdale's, um, you know, it's just really tough to make these sort of formats work. They're three miles away, I think, um, if I remember correctly from Tyson's Corner, where there's a Saks, there's a Neiman's, there's a Nordstrom's, there's plenty of other specialty stores. Um, I don't know, having pina coladas, if that's a strong enough reason. <laughs> Is to that enough of a traffic. draw for you, Steve? Would you go feel, for the colada I don't, shop? I don't, you know, <laughs> or like, I feel like we should be like getting caught in the rain or something. I don't know. That's right. Like, that's the right. advertising yes. almost writes itself, but it's right. So I, so I don't know. Um, I, I love the strategy of of these these hybrid go-to-market strategies of different formats to maximize market share. I don't have a good idea of really what this store is about and what is going to cause it to, you know, cause enough customers to shift from where they're currently buying their apparel or, or getting their pina coladas for that matter. <laughs> well, Steve, I think that you hit on a great point. You brought up Nordstrom. 
Um, I think that for me, this concept needs to really pay off convenience. I think Bloomingdale's mm-hmm. or really anybody, anybody coming out of this post-pandemic world, any retailers need to think about what convenience means for your customer and how your strategy aligns with making the most convenient shopping experience for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that where Nordstrom Local does so well is it's the, the surfaces. It's not really right. about, they don't even have clothing to choose from in those stores. But if you go in into one of the Nordstrom local locations. I mean, we went into the New York location days after they opened and the entire outer walls of the store are filled with packages that are ready for people to pick up. You know, like people Mm -hmm. want to use this service. They want to be able to try something on in the store, return it, bring in their own clothes that they might want to wear with that item that they're trying on and have that kind of experience be quick, easy in and out, and then go to the major flagship stores when they want that full on department store experience. But I think that for this concept to work, it's less about the restaurants and those kinds of things. And believe me, back in my Target days, I was all about, you know, these food experiences and really what was getting people into store. But I think at this point in time, it is number one going to be about how quickly somebody can get in and out of your store and accomplish as many things as possible while they're in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's sometimes I say, you know, what's the definition of convenience, right? But if you're trying to put an outfit together, Right. It may be very convenient to drive <laughs> to the, to the mall where you can see a whole range of stores or go go to the full full line store. I mean that has been a challenge I think of a lot of these smaller store concepts is to become sort of a baby Bloomingdale's, right? And it's like, well that's not really what I go to Bloomingdale's for when I'm thinking about putting an outfit together, totally. right? So it's a very tough balance to strike you know, we'll, we'll see what it ultimately looks like. I mean, we've gotten some clues to it, but uh, I am very colored not to get off into another tangent, but I am very colored by my experience with the market by Macy's concept, which um, the one that's not too far from me um, here in Dallas um, was, was just a total miss in terms of not knowing who the customer was for not serving the convenience, you know, not having the convenience of a great assortment, uh, but not leaning into the kinds of things that Nordstrom local is really, really good at. So Perhaps that bias is carrying over in terms of the way I think about um, what Bloomies might look like and how it might well, do. Well, I, I think I think that's a great recap and analysis, Steve, and appreciate your your expert insights from your your years of experience um, with some of similar retailers, um, Macy's and and Neiman being two of those. Um, I'm going to take us into our next headline. Speaking of the mall department stores, something new is coming to Brookfield and Simon Malls. Uh, C3, also known as Creating Culinary Communities, which is perfectly in line with Amitak's uh, alliterative podcast, uh, is which is a prominent project of former hotelier Sam Nazarian. Um, is planning for 1,000 ghost kitchens to be opened by the end of this year. Now, why is this a retail story? Because two of the major investors in C3 are shopping mall giants, Brookfield Asset Management and Simon Property Group. Another investor in this $80 million raise to support the C3 effort is Reef Technology, which is a soft bank group uh, backed operator of food delivery kitchens and hubs for goods and services. Reef Technology is a a really interesting company uh, making use of these small parking lot spaces and urban centers. 
C3 plans to lease space in Brookfield and Simon Malls across the U.S. for a hybrid of their ghost kitchens and dine-in food hall concepts in order to maximize profits. So, Steve, this is going to totally shift what the food court of the mall was that we know it. And as people are trying to figure out new uses for the malls, what are your thoughts on this new strategy or approach that C3 is taking for some of these Brookfield and Simon properties? Well, I'm a little bit worried about where I'm going to go to get my free sample of teriyaki chicken if this gets too <laughs> too shaken up. But um, I mean, food courts, for the most part, absolutely need to be reinvented. And right. ghost kitchens are very on trend in terms of the move to home delivery. And there's there's lots of opportunities, I think, to kind of reconfigure how the home delivery space works. So on the one hand, kind of like it. On the other hand, you know, the problem in home delivery uh, certainly has a lot to do with consolidating the food prep, but it also has to do with the cost of delivering to people. So this gets at a little bit of the issue with the long-term sustainability of, of home delivery, uh, which is good. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't all come together unless people can figure out how to make money actually delivering this stuff. Different, different episode, probably. Right. Um, right. The, the, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit mixed on. Like, I get the idea that the malls want to reimagine the space, uh, or just make use of space that they can't productively lease. That makes sense to me. I'm having a hard time imagining how this works at scale in more than a handful of properties because the ghost mm. kitchen, that's not too far from me, which is quite a big operations, different people involved with it. You know, it's just as a sea of cars, just constantly coming. Right? right. And so I'm trying to imagine at a nicer mall, you know, how you kind of consolidate, you know, you get, you get the kitchen space, which you have to spend a lot of money to, to support this, you reinvent the food hall, and then you've got to have this like constant flow of cars coming, which is if it's a good mall, it, interferes with the whole customer experience. If it's a bad mall, that's a whole different question. So anytime people talk about repurposing these malls to be Amazon distribution centers or grocery micro fulfillment or whatever, I'm always like, well, okay, but you have to spend a lot of money to get there. It affects the whole shopper experience by having just a sea of cars constantly coming and, you know, there's zoning things and, and stuff like that. So I don't know. The, the doing this at scale seems a little bit challenging. I'm sure there's you know a few dozen locations that they could make work. Do you think that that's that's surmountable? I mean, I think that the this idea I I hear I'm such an advocate for you know the malls being used as as fulfillment centers and as mm -hmm. these ghost kitchen locations. And I do, I hear and understand, you know, that there are zoning requirements and there's traffic flow, but do you think that's something that we can overcome that it's just, it's going to take some investment in what that property becomes and, and an investment in the infrastructure to support these kinds of businesses. And are, do you think that that's just not something that the mall operators are interested in doing Steve or? Well, I think the mall operator, I mean, that? you know, it, it gets a little bit not to to be too much of a depends question, right? But you've got 150 to 200 malls, which are really, really strong. And yes, they need some changes, but they don't need to be fundamentally repurposed. And then you have every other mall. And I think both mm -hmm. from a mall owner and a community standpoint, you know, if it's a low traffic mall, it's not paying taxes, you know, people will figure that out. Um, right. It's more, and I think, you know, largely Brookfield 
and and others, you know, they're they're a little more concentrated in these better malls. And then I think, you know, that becomes a little bit more of a complex question. You know, I'm just trying to picture, um, you know, when I think about some of the malls that are around here that are that are good malls, and I think Brookfield owns a couple of them. What does it actually take? <laughs> you know, to sort of picture where food courts are, right? You know, in the center generally, and so. Uh, you know, can you work around it? Sure. Um, but the other question I think will always be if I'm an investor is that, okay, you know, I can go to that location with that access and egress and blah, 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 and spend all this money to try to make it work. Or I can go a mile away into a distribute, into a, a warehouse center and not have to do as much and not have to worry about the traffic and fighting with, you know, so there's, there's always going to be that sort of cost trade-off. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, just like the issue of doing a grocery micro-fulfillment center, you know, the cost basis has to be really, really low in the property you're going into to redo it versus go into a space that's just easier to work with. And so that's where my head, that's probably a long-winded answer, but that's where my head goes to is, yeah, a few dozen of these probably work. A few hundred? I don't think so. Right. No, I think think that makes sense. I think... The other thing that I'd point out is that it's not about, you know, we, food halls were all the rage pre-pandemic. I mean, you saw tons of people going into this space. And and I think now that people are starting to come back, that that idea of food as a driver to a retail destination is still, people are still experimenting with that, clearly with this sure. story also. But I think that, again, you know, it comes down to what's that shopping experience? How do you take this post-pandemic customer that is so accustomed to ordering online from DoorDash, from Postmates, from, you know, Uber Eats, all these places who's well-versed with that technology? And then how do you put them back into a food hall or food court situation? And so I think that the these operators, C3, are going to have to make as big an investment in the technology for, you know, how do I order from multiple vendors in the food hall and have one checkout or like these, these uh, consolidated point of sale systems, like these, all these kinds of systems that need to be in place for that customer to have a seamless experience or for the delivery drivers, you know, to your point, who are going to be coming in mass to, um, you know, deliver to all of these homes within range of these shopping malls to be able to have that quick in and out experience. It's nobody's going to be waiting in line, staring at, you know, Sabaro slices under a heat lamp anymore. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that you're going to have the patience um, and be able to do the volume um, in that location if you're going to go about it the the old way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, for sure. So, Big investment there. Well, another uh, company that we have in the news this week is looking at ways to repurpose their uh, their space, and that is John Lewis, the UK company own uh, employee owned company carrying John Lewis department stores and also Waitrose supermarkets, has announced plans to build ten thousand rental homes on their properties. Over the next decade, the property will properties will range from studio flats to four bedroom houses. They will be built on sites owned by the chain above Waitrose supermarkets or on land next to the company's distribution centers. Tenants of these spaces will have the option of renting homes that are fully furnished by the department store. And some of the developments will come with concierge service and a Waitrose convenience store in the development. Steve, I was pretty jazzed about this one. Um, it was really, I thought it was a really fun concept. What do you think about this? I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's hard to, you know, real estate, right? Location, location, location. So without right. see, seeing those, um, I don't know that I can go all in, but I think this idea, if you've got land 
already that's excess in some way and um, there's demand for housing and you can tie it together with your retail offering. It seems like there's a lot of there there and certainly fits with what we're seeing here in the States with a lot of more, you know, mixed use redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I like it. I think it's, it's really intriguing and um, you know, it's a great, it's a great way of repurposing land you already have and, and hopefully supporting your, your retail formats. We'll talk about uh, lots of new business models. I feel like that's been a recurring theme throughout this. We have Dollar General getting into healthcare, John Lewis getting into real estate. But I agree. I mean, I think this is a really great idea to, again, look at my customer completely, a 360 view of my customer. And how can I... I mean, effectively build a space for my customers. I'm a, I'm building mm-hmm. your a home on top of my stores so that you can have a convenience store, potentially an autonomous convenience store right in your in your main floor. But yeah. you know that I can start to serve and really get to know the customers inside my building, and then be able to curate an assortment for them that's in the bottom of their building that doesn't make it so that they have to leave and go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They're they're my right. customer in, in so many ways. Um, I think that it's smart to also be experimenting with, you know, renting the furniture services and having these as examples that they can point to for people that are looking at, um, you know, taking that on or exploring that option uh, from a customer perspective. But then, um, you know, I do question your location, location, location is 100% on, Steve. The distribution center uh, yeah, homes, right. oh. that to me was like, hmm, you, I, I don't know, John Lewis. I spent some time in London as a college student, but uh, I don't know if I'm I'm going to rent a flat next to a giant <laughs> distribution center with trucks going in and out. But you never know. You never yeah. know. Um, it all comes down to price and convenience and where they're located. So um, so <laughs> we'll see where what that looks like. I, I think I'm signing up for the condo on top of the supermarket. I don't know. Yeah, that, that sounds but... a little bit more appealing. Yeah. <laughs> me. All right. Well, let's go to our last headline. We have Glossier having a Diana Ross moment right now. They are coming out. They announced this week they've raised another $80 million in Series E funding, increasing their valuation to $1.8 billion. Lone Pine Capital led the round along with participation from existing investors, Forerunner, Index, IVP, Sequoia Capital, and Thrive Capital. The fully direct-to-consumer business will use the funds to continue to scale their online and offline channels globally. Uh, If you'll remember, they're opening three stores this year in Seattle, Los Angeles, and London, and are planning for dozens more, Steve, in 2022 as they build the world's number one destination for beauty discovery. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, you know, it turns out that physical retail isn't dead. I don't know if... (laughs) heard this before i I remember i think Um, i've seen you post that a couple times once or once or twice well so so first of all i think glossier has absolutely carved out a really strong niche position like a lot of these digitally native vertical brands have where they've got a very particular customer strong brand personality products that are very much designed or curated against that and so I think as just about every digitally native vertical brand on the planet has discovered, you're going to need stores. You need stores because some customers uh, aren't going to buy your product unless they can try it and have that experience. Cost of customer acquisition tends to be lower. 
Um, beauty is not such a big issue with returns, product returns um, so much. But um, so th- it's been very clear to me for years, which is why I've been saying it for years, that for these brands to get at any kind of scale, they're going to need a strong physical component. So I think this was completely predictable. I think obviously beauty was a challenging category during the height of the pandemic. Um, so now they need money to go go fund that growth. It's a pretty hot um, valuation market for e-commerce brands where Warby Parker is going public, Allbirds is going public. So, I mean, I think this is this moment in time where they have to step on the gas. Um, they have to kind of do a bit of, I don't know how much of a moonshot it is because I don't know their profitability. My guess is it's poor. And so you're at this point where it's either like we can't make it or we got to go for it. And the got to go for it means investing in brand, investing in stores, perfect timing to try to raise money, I think, in terms of valuation. So, you know, we'll we'll see how it plays out. But um, I, I think most of these brands, they don't have any real choice but to sort of go for it at this point, because staying in the middle basically probably means kind of slow death. But I, I like the brand. Um, I don't know what the economics of that brand look like. So it's hard for me, again, to like come fully down on it without some more details. But I think it's uh, very, very predictable that we're going to go in this direction and great time to raise money. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that goes, I think that's uh, the absolute truth right now is, is it seems like there's a lot of money flowing out there for these kinds of initiatives. Um, Steve, I'm curious, you know, they said Seattle, LA, London, where else would you be going right now if you were Glossier? (laughs) Well, um, I don't know, get the Warby Parker location list and go next door. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a certain degree. I mean, I know somebody mapped this out a while ago. If you took Untucket, Warby Parker, Apple, you know, there were a few brands that like every every brand that aspires to is within 300 yards of there. So, right. uh, you know, so it's going to be, you know, New York, Chicago. I mean, there's just Austin. I mean, I, I mean, I could probably come up with a list of their 60 next locations within a couple blocks. And it's going to depend on whether there's space available, but I mean, the play, right. the playbook, but every, and I think the, you know, the real answer from their own um, numbers, which sometimes people think is counterintuitive is pick the zip codes that you have the most customers in and right. open stores there. I mean, everybody, I mean, this is what William Sonoma did 40 years ago. Like this is not a new strategy for direct to consumer, but it just turns out that if you open a store where you already have a lot of sales, your online business tends to go up. Um, and so it's really about that trade area market share. But I, I think they'll go all the places that, um, you know, everybody else <laughs> before them has gone. Like, it's not it's not that complicated. I think it's the easiest world's easiest job as a real estate broker, probably at this point. Right. right that's true. I'm I'm curious if to see globally where they end up going. Like, do they are they going to start going into the Chinese market? Like, will they start to get into some of these bigger, um, I guess, more dense consumer bases and and how will they do in those markets? Um, will they start to yeah. go into, you know, will they be selling on, on with Alibaba? Will they go into these other spaces that will allow them to kind of get, I think to, to your point, closer to profitability to try to reach the volume and sales that they'll need to support some of these experience stores that they are rolling out. Yeah. I mean, I think international has been, you know, true. I mean, I think, you know, going to Toronto, going to Vancouver, you know, not, not such a stretch for a lot of these brands, but you know, when you start to get into, as I'm sure, you know, um, different market characteristics, 
you know, setting up e-commerce fulfillment, you know, it gets a lot more complicated. Um, you know, I think more so than many people imagine to -hmm. go into, um, some of these international markets. I mean, I think the wholesale pieces is interesting. You know, we've seen a lot of these brands, whether we're talking about, I know you talked about Indochino Mm -hmm. recently, Allbirds a lot that have, you know, decided to partner with a Target or partner with a Nordstrom um, to start to build that brand awareness and then come behind it perhaps with a stronger store offering. So yeah, I could see an Alibaba partnership. I could see a partnership with maybe a big European department store or Middle Eastern department store, Australian, you know, for, for that matter. But yeah, that, that, that's when it starts to get um, a little bit more complicated in terms of the, the risk and the cost trade-offs. Well, Steve, that wraps us up for the headlines this week. It is time for our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I got. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, let's go. Steve, I know from your book, Remarkable Retail, that you're a big SNL fan. What is your favorite <laughs> that, Is that what you took skit? away from the book? Well, it was one of many things, <laughs> of but many things. that okay. was I, yeah. that was one of my favorite lines that uh, that you have in your book is that it's with, from Lauren Michaels that when it's eleven thirty, it's time to go live. We're going live. It doesn't matter what what's going on. The show must go on. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, favorite SNL skit. Well, um, there's part of me, and probably nobody listening even remembers these. There's part of me that wants to go. Uh, sprockets, which is kind of a deep, oh deep God. cut. Um, and as a speaker, I, I kind of maybe tilt to the Matt Foley um, living down in a van by the river, but I'm, I'm going to go with cowbell. Um, cowbell. Oh, that was cowbell. a good one. Yeah. That was yeah. a great one. I, I think my favorite is actually a newer one. Kate McKinnon, when she gets her skits where she gets abducted by an alien and recounts the tales. <laughs> I was just rewatching that this yeah. morning and, oh, yeah. it's, it, uh, it's a good one. Um, all right. ITV is set to launch shoppable TV during its wildly popular series, Love Island, allowing mm. users with a smart TV to purchase featured products. What brand, without question, Steve, should be leveraging this platform right now? Well, I'm going to admit to never having watched Love Island. Not that <laughs> you know, there's anything wrong with it. Uh, I'm going to say hymns. Hymns, okay. Uh, hymns, yeah. All and, right. Uh, just because I envision, um, well, this is maybe typecasting the hymns customer too much, but uh, I'm picturing insecure men uh, observing Love Island and, and maybe uh, needing to deal with some of their insecurities, which is uh, what hymns helps with, I think. I, yes, you know Rumor what, Steve, we, we're on the same wavelength. I, I picked Mod Sexual Wellness, the new DC brand. I think we, I think we know this customer. So, um, ITV, if you need any suggestions for what brands to go out and pitch, Steve and I have some ideas for you. Um, okay, next question. Richard Branson recently announced he'll be departing for space nine days before recent retiree Jeff Bezos. If an epic billionaire space battle took place between the two, who would win, Steve? Um, well, I'm, I, why don't we have Zuck in there? I kind of picture like him hoverboarding to, to space. Um, I think we're going to have to go to Bezos because he's, I mean, they're both, they're both maniacs. But I think, you know, Be- Bezos has got a little bit more of a track record of, of executing on maniacal behavior. 
he is pretty jacked these days too. I thought about him. I'm going to go Branson because <laughs> I feel like he is going to do like Branson's sneaky. I feel like he would come in and yeah. he like knows, you know, some ninja moves or something and could take out Bezos <laughs> at like the five-star death punch or something. Like ninja and, apparent- and steroids in an epic battle. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Apparently, Andy it. Jassy took Bezos out with the kayak paddle at a uh, outing <laughs> a few years back too. So, my I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Branson on this one. I I kind of hope it happens, Steve. We'll see. We'll we'll place our bets right now and see what happens. Uh, speaking of space travel, would someone have to pay you to go to space, Steve, or would you pay to go to space? Um, they're gonna have to pay me. I'm, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a baby from a risk seeking <laughs> standpoint and I'm quite claustrophobic. So it's, it's going to take a pretty big, pretty big check. I think I, I agree. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just a okay from down here. Um, <laughs> you would have to pay me a lot of money to, uh, get on any either one of those spaceships. Uh, Okay. One thing we don't have in space yet, but are likely to soon, is Starbucks. The coffee giant announced this week that they'll start offering secret menu items available for order via TikTok and Instagram. Steve, what is your go-to Starbucks order? My go-to st- Starbucks, I mean, I'm going to come across as a really boring guy. My, my, uh, my go-to Starbucks order is um, a grande Americano. If I'm feeling a little bit frisky, I might go flat white with some, uh, some of those little egg bites. You know, oh, good, good nice. source of protein. The yeah. sous vide yeah. egg bites. Okay. Sous vide egg bites. Well, yeah. well, Steve, if somebody uh, would like to buy you a flat white or a grande Americano, um, <laughs> where could they find you? Oh, they can. I, I'm, I'm everywhere shamelessly promoting things. So uh, they find me on social media, which uh, at, at Stephen P. Dennis or my website, which is www.stephenpdennis.com and that's Stephen with a V the, the correct way to spell the correct way let, let it be noted the correct way to spell Stephen uh, you can check out the newest edition of Steve's book Remarkable Retail or they will be launching season 3 of Steve's podcast also called Remarkable Retail Steve thank you so much for being with us today we really appreciate having you oh thanks it was, it was fun thanks for having me that wraps us up this week. Happy birthday to Kevin Bacon and the one and only Beck, who, if you were wondering, of course you were, has a Bacon score of two. Beck was in the movie Southlander with Greg Henry, who's in the movie Super with Kevin Bacon. And remember, if you can only read or listen to one retail blog in the business, make it Talk. Our Fast Five podcast is the quickest, fastest rundown of all the week's top news, and our twice-weekly newsletter tells you the top five things you need to know each day. And features special content exclusive to us and just for you and all within the preview pane of your inbox. You can sign up today at amitalk.blog. Thanks as always for listening and please remember to like and leave us a review wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. And of course, be careful out there. The Amitalk Fast Five is brought to you with the help and support of the A&M Consumer and Retail Group. The AM Consumer and Retail Group is a management consulting firm that tackles the most complex challenges and advances its clients, people, and communities toward their maximum potential. CRG brings the experience, tools, and operator-like pragmatism to help retailers and consumer products companies be on the right side of disruption. And Takeoff. Takeoff is transforming grocery by empowering grocers to thrive online. The key is micro-fulfillment small robotic fulfillment centers that can be leveraged at a hyper-local scale.
Takeoff also offers a robust software suite so grocers can seamlessly integrate the robotic solution into their existing businesses. To learn more, visit takeoff.com.